Well, good morning and welcome to church family. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here at Clear Creek. If you are a guest, welcome. And if you are part of the Clear Creek family, I'm so glad that you are with us today, whether in person or online. I'm obviously not here in person. I'm overseas with a group of our members and others looking through Israel and the places that Jesus walked. But I trust that you're having a wonderful weekend And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Now, you have joined us for a great day because we begin part one of our God Wins Revelation series today. And it will take us up basically till Thanksgiving. But before we get into chapter one, there's this word I'd like for us to just kind of reflect on for a moment. In fact, we just sang it a moment ago. It's that beautiful old word, hallelujah. Hallelujah. It means praise ye Yahweh or praise ye God. We find this word scattered throughout the Old Testament, especially there in the book of Psalms, the songs of the faithful. But then you come to the New Testament and that word just sort of disappears from most of the Bible. In fact, the word hallelujah is not found anywhere in the New Testament until you get to the very end. It's found four times in one chapter, near the very end of the last book of the Bible. It's found, in fact, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 says, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. This is not said by mere mortals, but by angelic beings and those surrounding the throne of God in heaven. They say four times, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God in the midst of the chaos and the confusion. Praise God when life is falling apart. Praise God because there is one who holds it all together. Friend, I don't know if you have gone to the end of the story yet, but spoiler alert, God wins in the end. And by the way, God is winning today. I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's go back to the beginning. And I want to start with this question. Do you know what the word apocalypse means? Apocalypse is one of these words that we often use when talking about the book of Revelation. And when we talk about things that seem crazy, chaotic, or destructive, don't we? In fact, I asked some friends, what do you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? And these are some of the answers that they gave me. They said, well, Diggs, I think of destruction. Or I think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, or suffering, or chaos, or the end of times, or the end of the ages, or, how about this, the end of the world. After all, isn't this what we always think of? There's some movie, everything's blowing up, it's an apocalyptic moment, and you've probably got Arnold Schwarzenegger there saying he'll be back to protect you or save the day. But if you've seen Arnold any time recently, you know he can't save the day. So what does this word apocalypse mean? It's actually a bigger, more powerful word than we realize. But if you were to ask the first century Christians, hey, what do you think about your day and age? They would tell you, yes, it feels like the world is coming to an end. They may not have used the word apocalypse, but they would have said, it's all coming apart. This Jesus movement, this thing that God began through Christ, the resurrection of Jesus that we had such great hopes in, the world is falling apart 
Here's what we know about the book of Revelation. We've done a lot of study, and our best guess is that the book of Revelation was written sometime between 95 and 96 A.D. It's near the end of the first century. The Jesus movement is about 60 years old at this point. But the one word that describes the church at this point is the word suffering. The church is undergoing incredible persecution. But the church has always undergone persecution, hasn't it? It has, but it's just gotten progressively worse. There was this major tipping point, little history here to get the context. There was a major tipping point about 30 years earlier in the 60s AD when a new emperor named Nero took the throne. And he was a wicked, horrible man. Story goes, legend goes, that one night he somehow started a fire that started to engulf over a third of the city of Rome. And as Rome burned, he stood on the palace playing his fiddle, watching it burn. But because he did not want to be blamed for the fire, he blamed the Christians and thus sparked a massive persecution centered primarily in the city of Rome and around the area. It was horrible. Christians were being killed in very creative and horrific ways. Christians were being fed to wild animals. Others were being wrapped with ropes around their wrists and their ankles to horses and yanked apart. And still other Christians were dipped in wax or tar, put on big spikes, hung on walls, lit on fire to light parties for Caesar's guests as they laughed as the Christians screamed. It was a horrific time. And things got worse for the church. Peter and John, or excuse me, Peter and Paul, two of the apostles, were both martyred in this decade. Paul was beheaded outside of the city of Rome, and Peter was crucified upside down inside the city of Rome for loving and worshiping Jesus. A couple years later, at the end of the decade, the famous and well-loved leader, Timothy, was killed for defending against false teachings. By the 70s, 80s, things get even worse. A Roman general named Titus marches into Jerusalem and utterly, completely destroys the city. The level of destruction is unimaginable. As Jesus told them, not two stones would be left on top of the other. So badly was the city destroyed. But things continued to get worse until in the 90s, another Caesar by the name of Domitian comes to the throne. And Domitian was the worst of the worst. What Nero did in the city of Rome, Domitian spreads to the entire empire, attacking Christians as far as he can. Now, here are the three things you need to know about this horrible individual of history. Number one, he was insecure. Number two, he was incredibly powerful. And number three, his greatest desire was that you would worship him. Worship me. He wanted to be the top dog on the throne, worshipped by all. In fact, he called himself the Son of God. This was nothing new for emperors. They all, when they died, would be elevated to the Son of God status. But in his lifetime, he wanted to be called the Son of God, even demanding his wife call him Son of God. So prevalent was this worship of the emperor that there were temples scattered throughout the empire where you would go in, take a pinch of incense, walk over to the burning coals on the altar, and you would give a sacrifice of worship to the emperor and in Latin say, Caesar Curios, which means Caesar is Lord. Now, to most people who lived in the Roman Empire, there was no big deal. After all, Rome is full of gods. So what is one more? After all, 
He's an insecure, powerful man. It's just the cost of doing business in the first century. What's the big deal? But to John and the other followers of Jesus, it was a big deal. Honor Caesar? Of course. Be a good citizen in Rome? Absolutely. But Caesar is Lord. Worship Caesar? Never. I love what author James Callis wrote. He said this, In his old age, John was not about to bow his knee to a mere mortal. So instead of bowing his knee, the Roman emperor and those under his control attacked attacked John. They then, according to legend, put him in a vat of boiling oil. John somehow didn't die from it. He slips out of it and they think, well, we can't kill him, so let's exile him. And so they take him to this little rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And this is what John writes in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because of God's word, because of the truth of God, because of the testimony saying Jesus is Lord. I'm now on the island of Patmos. I've been exiled. So this church that has known nothing but suffering now has lost their beloved pastor who has cared for them. And they're saying, it feels like the end of the world. But they probably didn't use the word apocalypse. I know we use it to describe destructive moments in history, but that is not at all the word or what it means. In fact, I did a poll, though, on Facebook, and I asked you this question. What song comes to mind when you hear the word apocalypse? And I said, what, do you, what sort of stands out to you? And these were some of the answers that you were given. I want to give you just a few of them. Now, now as I play them, I want you to listen. And if you know what the song is or who the composer or singer is, go ahead and say it out loud. Are you ready? Here's the first answer that you gave on the Facebook poll Ready? Anyone know it? Well, you would if you watched the classic movie Apocalypse Now. That is Flight of the Valkyrie by Richard Wagner or Wagner. Okay, are you ready for the second one? Here we go, second one. It's the final countdown. Yeah, final countdown by Europe. Now, I know this is not really end times, but some of you have said this is what I think of when I think of the end times. All right, we can cut that one. Let's go to the next song. Are you ready? In the year 2525. You know this one? Yeah, the title is right there. In the year 2525, if man is still alive, very much a pessimistic view of the future, and it was written by Zager and Evans. Let me give you one that was mentioned by a number of younger people. Are you ready? Radioactive by Imagine Dragons talks about this is the apocalypse and again gives a very bleak picture of the future. How about this classic one from the late 60s, early 70s? You know this one? By the way, just listen to who calls out the generational divide in this room. This is Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival. 
But the number one song that you recommended, the number one that you said, this is the picture of Apocalypse. Are you ready? Here it is. It's the end of the world as we know it. Yeah, it's the end of the world as we know it by R.E.M. Or if you're Sean Alex, he said, hey, isn't that the Chicken Little song? So Chicken Little or R.E.M. Now, what am I trying to tell you? What am I trying to tell you? You can cut the music. Go ahead. There you go. What am I trying to tell you? It's this. I don't think we know what the apocalypse means. I just don't think we know what that word means. So what does it mean? Let me help you out here. The word apocalypse comes from this Greek word, apokalypsis. Apokalypsis. And it means, well, it means unveil, disclose, reveal. Or how about this word, revelation? Apocalypse or apokalypsis doesn't mean chaos or the end of the world or destruction or four horsemen. It means revealing something, revelation. Imagine going to a performance, a play, and the big velvet curtain rises. And now what is behind the scenes, what you could not see before, is revealed. That is the picture John wants us to have. He is saying, I want you to see something or actually, well, look what he says. Now that you know this word, let's look. At Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So now that you know a little bit of Greek, notice this. It is the apocalypsis or apocalypse of Jesus Christ. He is saying the curtain is coming up and the one that you have never seen in all of his glory, the one that you have never been able to witness with your eyes because it would blow them away, the one that we've only had glimpses of on earth in human form, the apocalypse or revelation of Jesus Christ. Hear me now. This letter to the seven churches suffering, going through unimaginable difficulty, is about to get a picture of the one that they have said, we give our lives to Jesus. And John says, now God gives you a picture of Jesus. And here's the one point. If you don't get anything else this morning, this is the one point. Are you ready? When the world is at its worst, we need to see Jesus at his best. When the world is at its worst, we need to see Jesus at its best. And listen, we're not living in 95 AD. We're living in 2022 AD. And the truth is, while we don't have Domitian, we absolutely have problems of our own. And I just wonder today, do you need to see Jesus at his best? Do you need to see him for what he is, not simply as a peasant Galilean, but as the king of the universe, the one who rules and reigns? And John says, I want you to get a picture of Jesus because when the world is at its worst, we are tempted to miss what is important or true. We need a picture of Jesus at his best. Now, Apocalypse was not simply the style of writing that John uses, or not just the title, but rather it is a style of literature. Uh, In fact, it's not unique to John. By John's day, there was a whole genre of literature or writing called apocalyptic literature. It began before Jesus was born and was going through John's day, and there were just Jewish writers who sensed God was up to something. Something was about to happen, and they began to try and express what was going on through creative writing. So if you went to a first century bookstore, 
I know, they didn't have bookstores in the first century where you go and buy books. They had scroll stores. You go and get a scroll. No, no, that's not true either. Okay, just go with me. Pretend there was such a thing as a first century bookstore. You walk in. You go past the children's section, the sci-fi section, the romance section, the horror section, and you come to the back, and they're tucked in the back is the apocalyptic literature section. And you would find books about weird visions and imagery, all these different pieces, and there would be some commonalities between all of the apocalyptic literature and some common themes in John's apocalypse or revelation of Jesus. There are four things that apocalyptic literature had. Number one, it had a lot of symbols in it. Apocalyptic literature is just marinated in imagery just dripping with symbols. So in Revelation, we're going to see pictures of beasts and dragons, jewels and angels. We will see pictures of weird multi-eyed creatures. We will see fire and hail and seas and a woman. We will see all these different symbols. Now, here's the thing you need to understand. Symbols symbolize something. Symbols don't always literally represent the symbol. They rather represent something else. You need to know as Christians, we take the Bible seriously, but we don't take everything in it literally. Now, before you want to throw stones or tomatoes at the screen, let me explain what I mean. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, we are given a picture of Jesus that is Well, I think it's symbolic of Jesus. Here is what we're told. We're told that Jesus appears as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, is that a literal image of Jesus? Does Jesus really look like lamb chopped the lamb with seven horns and seven eyes? I hope not. I mean, that would be awkward, wouldn't it? It is symbolic about Jesus that he is the lamb that was killed or slain for us, and yet he has these symbols of power, horns, and he has eyes to see what is going on. It is symbolic. It is full of symbolism. It's also full of numbers. The book of Revelation has all sorts of numbers, such as the number 666, which is the mark of the what? The mark of the beast. Now, I know some of you are excited about this series because you want to know who 666 is because you want to be able to unfriend them from Facebook, don't you? So what is 666? Or what about 144,000, the people of God? Or what about the number 12 that's used? Or the number 24 or 3 or 4 or the number 7? All these numbers have significance. In fact, real quick, we've given you two resources. They're on the teaching notes. They're also on the printout from this week that we emailed to you. But two PDFs. Number one is a glossary of terms. It's four pages with definitions for a lot of the terms that we're going to see in Scripture. The second is a list of recommended reading for the book of Revelation if you want to go deeper in it. And it deals a lot with symbols and numbers. The third thing, though, is colors are throughout the literature. So we're going to see like an emerald rainbow. How do you have a rainbow that's only an emerald? I don't know, but it's in there. And then there's poetry. Now, these four things, symbols, numbers, colors, and poetry, are all part of apocalyptic literature. And they're there to help us get a better picture of what's going on. Okay, now that we've done this, now that we've done this, We're going to read, and I think you're ready to read the first eight verses 
of Revelation chapter 1. And I want you to pay attention. Look for symbols, numbers, colors, and poetry or other details that just stand out to you because when we're done reading it, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to share what you notice to those sitting around you. So are you ready? Here we go. The apocalypse of Jesus. Here we go. The revelation from Jesus. You say, wait, is it from or about or of Jesus? Yeah, it is from Jesus and of Jesus because it's all about Jesus. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That word amen means let it be or we agree. He goes on. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of it, of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Did you see it? Do you see some symbols, some numbers, some poetry, some colors? What did you see? What details? Turn to your neighbor, take 30 seconds, and share with them what you saw in this text. Ready? Go. back together now. Now, I'd love to hear what you shared, but I'm not there, so I can't. So let me guess some of the things that may have stood out to you. Uh, first, did you notice that he says blessed, that there's a blessing in reading this? But it's not just in reading this book, but it's in taking it to heart, doing something with it. Now, notice this other thing. He calls it a book of prophecy or words of prophecy. Now, what's his point? The book of Revelation, yes, it is prophetic. It will deal with future events. God wants his church to know what is to come. And in the coming weeks, we will dive deep into it. But warning, it is not just about the future because it is addressed to churches in the present day, in the 90s AD. And did you notice how many churches? Seven. Now, is this literal or figurative? The answer is yes, it is literal he will talk to seven different churches in chapter 2 and 3, but it is also figurative. Remember, seven is the number for perfection or completion. So he's going to be talking to these seven, but it applies to all of us throughout time and history. 
And then did you notice some of these other details? It says the seven spirits. What does that mean? Is, is Casper and his buddies in heaven with God around the throne? Well, again, remember the number seven is symbolic for perfection. Who is the perfect spirit? The Holy Spirit. This is John's creative way of saying that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all there. And I know when you hear that, you just go, well, why didn't you just say that? Well, we'll get into why later. But he's saying that the Spirit of God is present in all of God's activity. And not only that, did you notice this little phrase at the end? He gives himself a title, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, does that mean that Jesus is literally a symbol called an Aleph? Or a symbol called Omega. No. Those were the first letter and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. What is Jesus saying and John now reporting to us? Jesus is saying, before Domitian was on the throne, I was the first word. I was here long before Domitian. And when Domitian is nothing more than dust and bones, I will still be on the throne. I was the beginning. I'm the end, the alpha, the omega. What Jesus wants you to know, what all of us here need to hear, is that when the world is at its worst, we need to see Jesus at his best. And he is not some piddly small thing. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of God. He was, he is, and he will be forever. He is the beginning and he is the end. He and he alone sit on the throne. Not Nero. Not Domitian. Not Stalin. Not Mao Zedong. Not any of the tin pot dictators throughout human history. Not Republicans or Democrats. Not ancient Rome. Not Nazi Germany. Not communist Russia. Not communist China. Jesus Christ is on the throne. And when the world is at its worst, when we don't know where things are going, when we're afraid about our finances, our relationships, our city, when we're scared for our kids or unsure of how to live well in a place that does not love or know God, we must see Jesus as who he is. He is the big God. And John is going to say over and over and over again, God wins, and let me show you what he looks like. So are you ready? I mean, are you ready to see Jesus? Fully unveiled, the curtain rises. And in just a moment, in verse 12, John is going to say this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw. And we'll look at what he saw next week. But for this week, do you see Jesus? Do you see him at his best? Because when the world is at its worst, not just ancient Rome, but when your life is at its worst, you don't need a raise, you don't need counseling, you don't need those things. Those are helpful, those are good. But at the basement level, you need to see Jesus at his best and that God wins. So let's pray together and then let's worship. With every head bow and every eye closed, what is it you need from Jesus today? Would you tell him that? 
and know that he is a big enough God to handle all of your needs. Like the first century church, we need to see Jesus today. Lord, give us a revelation, a fuller picture of who our Savior is, that his brilliance and his bigness and his goodness would displace all the other things that are pressing in on us. And may we be reminded that no one sits on the throne, nor can they take the throne from Jesus. For he and he alone is the king of the universe, the one who died and rose. And those who trust in him will rise again one day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.